Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. If you like what you hear today, please add a rating and review in iTunes. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have Dr. Mark Leary on the podcast. Mark is Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience and Director of the Interdisciplinary Behavioral Research Center at Duke University. He's editor of the Handbook of Self and Identity and author of The Curse of the Self. Mark, really excited to chat with you today. Great to talk with you, Scott. You're one of my heroes. <laughs> You're one of my oh, intellect. Well, thank you. Thank you. I don't know why, but thank you. One of my intellectual inspirations. I uh, I really uh, re- have great respect for your work. You know, I thought of a bunch of questions I'd like to ask you, and I want you to feel free to add any any topics you'd like to discuss. Okay. First, I want to start with a really easy one, and that's, what's the difference between the self and identity? I thought I'd just jump into the deep end. Yeah, I mean, self has been defined in 17 different ways in the literature. <laughs> The way I think of the self is just the cognitive apparatus that allows us to be self-aware and to think about ourselves consciously. So the self, when you think of it that way, it doesn't have any content. It's just the mental apparatus that allows self-awareness and self-thought. Identity has content. It's what you're thinking about yourself and who you are and what you're like. So the fundamental difference is it's the processes that allow you to think about yourself versus what you happen to be thinking about yourself. Oh, I see. So the self is a more general construct. or, the, or the, Well, not just general, but the self is what makes the identity possible. That's the way I think about it. It's like, that's, not a, that's not universally agreed on. People use the word self in a lot of different ways. Okay. In fact, it's rather odd for somebody who's so associated with the self and identity literature, but I think we ought to abolish use of the word self in psychology in order to communicate more clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but we clearly have something that needs to be defined. You know, whether yeah. it's called the self or it's we call it something else, we have something that other animals don't have developed to this degree at all. That's yeah. correct. Absolutely yeah. correct. Yeah. So I like that, first of all. And, and not only identity is, if the self is the hardware and the identity is the software, then we also have self-esteem as another form of software. Imagination maybe is a software. So there are all these different like apps that we can install in the self. My question to you is, are there any good apps or should we just abolish, you know, do we need to just transcend the self 100% and call it a day? Like, is it okay to have an identity? Um, that's a really interesting question. Self-awareness is absolutely essential for well-being. We couldn't get up in the morning and plan our day. We couldn't decide whether we were good enough to try something. Uh, we couldn't, really couldn't interact with people as human beings if we didn't have a concept of ourselves. So you have to have self-awareness. You have to have at least somewhat of an identity. But it gets us into trouble because a lot of the thoughts we have about ourselves 
get us into difficulties because they're too negative. We think more about the future than we need to navigate life. And so we worry about things we don't need to be worrying about. And our identities can get us in trouble. So sometimes we begin to relate to people in terms of identities. I'm a certain kind of person and you're a certain kind of person. When in fact, if those identities didn't exist, we'd get along a lot better. We divide ourselves from other people based on our identities. So it's a mixed blessing. My book was called The Curse of the Self. That was a little darker than it needed to be. It's really a double-edged <laughs> It's a double-edged sword or a mixed blessing, and I think people need to be aware of the fact that their self-talk and their self-awareness gets them into trouble. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The curse might be a little bit too dramatic, considering I think that like, if a turtle could talk, a turtle probably would say, uh, it's jealous of us that we have a self. Absolutely so, true. So are you aware of uh, Abraham Tesser's work? Absolutely. So, I know Abe. Oh, great. He said the self engenders, quote, a self zoo of self-defense mechanisms. I like that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he had had that article on the self zoo. Correct. I love that. Would you mind just elucidating maybe five or six of the most prominent that's been studied in social psychology of these mechanisms? Well, there are so many because they are really cognitive mechanisms that simply have self-awareness of riding alongside them. That is, these cognitive mechanisms that Tesser thinks of as the self-zoo are more general mechanisms for decision-making and navigating life. And if you simply then connect that up with our ability to think about ourselves, then you get a very large variety of cognitive processes. So he talks about people's self-serving attributions, our tendency to perceive ourselves in desirable ways, to explain our behavior in ways that make us feel good about ourselves. He talks about denial of your negative characteristics. Just about anything somebody could do to distort their view of their self is included in Tesser's self-zoo. Okay, so the bottom line here is that we have many, many ways of protecting ourselves in a way that will maintain a feel-good. We like to feel good. We like to avoid pain. We like to feel good. We like to avoid pain. Well, that's the way Tesser interpreted it. He interpreted all of these self-defense mechanisms as ways to simply feel good about yourself and maintain (laughs) self-esteem. They are certainly that. We'd rather feel good about ourselves than bad about ourselves. But I think a lot of these defense mechanisms are really more interpersonal. They're really oriented toward other people, trying to get them to perceive us in particular ways that get us what we want out of social life than just ways of fooling ourselves in our own minds. Deep down, most of us sort of know what our shortcomings are. We know that we really goofed off and failed because we goofed off, Uh, but we don't want other people to know it. So a lot of these biases are more social than they are in our own minds. Yeah, and so that's really a key piece of this puzzle that you've brought to the table with your work, prominently your work on sociometric theory, which I'm a fan, I'll say, I'm a fan of your revised sociometric theory, if I may be honest. (laughs) I think it's more encompassing. Well, Any idea, when you come up with any idea, it's pretty half-baked in its initial presentation. So you're right. It's been massaged and improved over the years. And, you know, I don't know how it really stands in its revised version. But, yeah, I don't offer any apologies for the fact that you make things better when you realize they're weak and have holes. (laughs) Well, (laughs) let me make clear to my listeners, you know, it should not be underestimated what you've brought to the table here. So, you know, Abraham Maslow talked about the need for belonging. He also talked about the need for esteem. In a lot of ways, you've kind of linked those two together. And maybe it's still important to talk about them as separate needs. But nevertheless, it does seem to be the case that our self-esteem tracks various specific interpersonal things. So our self-esteem rises or falls depending on our interpersonal conditions, probably you'd argue more so than our own freely fluctuating internal Milo. Yes, I think so. For the first part of my career, I stayed away from the topic of self-esteem like it was the plague because I didn't understand it at all. I didn't understand what the mechanism was that simply made people to want to feel good about themselves for no particular reason. As you said, we want to feel good rather than bad. So I understand that. But if you posit a need for self-esteem as a fundamental human need, it must have to do something really important or it wouldn't have evolved as a need. So that's what got me got to thinking about what does self-esteem do? These changes that we feel about ourselves that go up and down as we walk through life, what's their function? And the sociometer theory of self-esteem suggests that it's really the internal mechanism 
that monitors how we're doing with other people, the degree to which they value having relationships with us and thus are, are going to give us certain kinds of affordances that we would like to have. So for me, self-esteem is primarily a monitor of how well social life is going for us. And when it's going badly, our negative feelings about ourselves get our attention, and then they motivate us to take steps to try to improve whatever the problem is. So you're right. I, as a social psychologist, I see everything in terms of social relationships. And anything we're doing just in our own heads that doesn't serve any behavioral function or get anything for us, yeah, we do that, but that can't be the fundamental thing that drives human behavior, or else we just sit in our room all of the time and just think happy thoughts. We don't do that. Well, you know, I appreciate that. I have a bunch of follow-up things to that. So one is I want to make – I also want to make clear I really like this phrase relational value that you talk about, especially in your revised uh, version. So there's different ways that we can be of value to others. So there's two fundamental sub-needs of esteem, I would argue. Well, and then uh, Mitch Princeton recently has posited them as two forms of popularity. But I think that it maps exactly onto yours as well. The need for liking and the need for status. Those are two big ways that humans have relational value to others. And therefore, both can be sources of self-esteem. We primarily draw our self-esteem on both sources. However, I'm trying to think of really dramatic exceptions. You know, what about serial killers? Like, why do they have such high self-esteem when killing someone really will not increase your liking and probably won't increase your social status except for among <laughs> other, among other, your, your, friend, your two or three other serial killer friends? I think when we go to really extreme cases like serial killers, we're dealing with pathologies that sort of make the normal principles that control human behavior somewhat moot. So if you lack empathy entirely, for example, for other people, you don't recognize that empathy for other people is going to gain you relational value. You're going to have better relationships with other people the more empathy you have. But if you're a sociopath and have no empathy, then that's just kind of out the window and you're not actually a functioning normal human being anymore. I like the distinction between the liking and the status. Uh, we wrote a chapter a couple of years ago where we draw a distinction between what we call relational value, which has to do with the degree to which other people value their relationships with you as a person, and instrumental social value, which is more related to status. That has to do with the actual value you bring to groups by virtue of your competencies and perhaps your leadership or your resources. And as you said, those are two different things. It's one thing to be liked and to have value as a person in a relationship. And it's another thing for other people to value having you around because you give them something that they want. They don't care about you as a person, but if you're the best member on the team, they want you to be on the team. Or if you have money to devote to the cause, they want you to be involved. Or if you have competencies that help the hunting party. But those seem to be two very different ways to have value. And I wouldn't be surprised at all that self-esteem is tracking both of those things We've tended to focus on the relational part of that rather than the instrumental value that you belong to the groups of which you're a member. Okay, this is great. I really want to nerd out with you today, and uh, I almost apologize to my listeners ahead of time. I hope that they, they find this stimulating. But I think we can make some more finer grain distinctions because, you know, within the extroversion domain, it seems like both of those things could be solely within the extroversion domain. In a sense that, you know, extroversion can be distinguished in between two facets. Assertiveness, which seems to really be tied to instrumental social value interests. And the second one is affiliation or, you know, affiliation slash uh, positive social interaction, a drive for positive social interactions. And that can be tied to your relational value one. But then there's another dimension of personality that I think is different, and that's within the agreeableness domain, and that's compassion. So affiliation is not the same thing as compassion and wanting to connect. So actually, let's talk about three different fundamental needs. There's the wanting to connect and wanting to be liked, I think is different, and then wanting to have status. I think probably all three are root to self-esteem. So um, all three, and it seems like when we look at the narcissism construct, and I'm working on a theory right now that narcissism, that the two main forms of narcissism, vulnerable and grandiose, can actually be mapped on to the need for liking, an addiction to the need for liking and an addiction to the need for status Okay, is, is the basic idea. And I'm really excited to like raise that idea to you here in public in front of 50,000 people who are listening. You know, like, does that make sense? 
I have never thought of it that way, but I can see that vulnerable narcissists are more concerned about relationships and being accepted and being liked, and grandiose narcissists would be more likely to want to have status and respect and to dominate people. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, One difficulty when you get to narcissism, even though I think that's perfectly right, narcissism, again, is one of these sort of aberrations that require a high level of self-awareness. So during the course of evolution, as these mechanisms were evolving to help monitor our social relationships, I don't know whether narcissism was relevant at that point like it is today because you have to have a high level of cognitive self-awareness, which is a much more recent evolutionary development. So anytime there's something that human beings do that probably they weren't doing for six million years of human evolution, then I think all kinds of other things can come into play. And that may be built upon the basic evolved mechanisms that we have to monitor our social relationships and be accepted and to have value. But then there's all kinds of other funny stuff going on. But I think the essence of what you're saying is right on. Yeah, I like what you're saying too. Now, are there narcissistic turtles are there narcissistic apes? Do we actually, uh, you know, do we, I mean, when I say apes, I mean, you know, I mean a specific kind of, you know, non-human. <laughs> you know, do we see narcissism in other species? There's no way to know because we can't measure their sense of grandiosity and to know whether their self-views are inflated because they probably don't have self-views. We also don't have a sense of their sense of entitlement, which, of course, is an important part of narcissism. So I just don't think it applies unless you have highly, highly cognitively evolved animals that can have a very complex self-concept in which they're evaluating themselves positively. They have a sense they deserve more than others do and that they have a, a right to exploit other people to get what they want. You know, in animals, you see dominant members of any species that run over the others and control everything. But you don't have the sense that comes out of a grandiose self-view. That is so interesting. Like a shark, you know, a shark who's particularly likes to eat other fish. We wouldn't call it a grandiose narcissist. We would just call it a, a, just a more of a shark. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just a dom- you know, and it may be a particularly dominant shark. But if they, don't, if they don't have a con- self-concept, then narcissism is not really. That's cool. So the way, yeah, the way I'm thinking of it and the reason why I use the word addiction is I actually think it, you know, it ties it to the rest of all humanity. We have a tendency to take certain people and say, and make it very divisive and say, oh, well, you're such a narcissist. I'm not, you know, it's like, well, you know, there's a little bit of that in all of us, you know? So when I say addiction, I mean, power and status is inherently rewarding in our human species. It's built into our, our, all of our brains to some degree to be rewarding. Now, Dr. Keltner's research has shown that the more power you get, the more of an asshole you become, or, or, the, or, the, or the more you seek power, he would say. And I think that grandiose narcissism in a lot of ways is, it, it's this fundamental system, the need for power and status or a hierarchy that has kind of been hijacked in a way that it's just, you just can't, you can never get enough of it. And then in terms of vulnerable narcissism, the need for a liking system has been hijacked in some way, either through, you know, childhood emotional abuse or, you know, usually you get more of the abuse in childhood with the vulnerable than the um, grandiose. But that still hijacked the system of like, you're always on the lookout for signs of potential rejection. But to me, these are abnormal alterations of a basic human personality dimension. I like that a great deal. I think that's spot on. And they're not only aberrations, but it's like the grandiose and the vulnerable narcissist are stuck in a rut. You're absolutely right. There's parts of both of those things in all of us. There's times in which in a given particular situation, we feel too entitled, we're a bit narcissistic, or we feel like a vulnerable narcissist. The problem with both of those kinds of people is that's their main way of interacting with the world and dealing with other people, and you can't go through life being that way all the time without getting yourself into trouble. That's right. And you get yourself in trouble in different ways depending on the flavor of narcissism. So vulnerable narcissism, you get to take in trouble with yourself, whereas grandiose narcissists tend to get in trouble with others more. That's right. Internalizing versus externalizing. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But both are trouble to someone or some, some, some self, whether it's your own self or. So, grandiose narcissists are very good at deflecting. They're like master ninjas of deflecting everything that, uh, onto others. It's like the elf in the room here is the discussion of the, our president of the United States. Uh, <laughs> do you see any problem with our current. Now, I know that we're not supposed to be diagnosing. Uh, yes. The president, the APA has said that that's not professional practice. But, I, yeah. but I, my question actually is a little bit different. Do you think that there's 
any problems there with our current president of the United States when it comes to the self aspects, the aberrations of the self. And it's funny, every, every interview that I've had with anyone for the last six months has somehow gotten around to that question, given the things <laughs> that I study. And well, yeah, I'm not a clinical yeah. psychologist, and I'm not going to diagnose. But as you said, this is not just a clinical diagnosis. I mean, there's a, there's a continuum of narcissistic tendencies. And I think what I've started doing, rather than taking a stand and being accused of diagnosing, is simply to describe for people what the primary characteristics of a narcissist are. And once you hear those, everybody would go, well, sure. The president has a, a great number of narcissistic tendencies in terms of having an inflated self-view, a sense of entitlement, disregard for other people's well-being at times, uh, attention-seeking, a big requirement for respect and loyalty, and then the dismissal of anybody who doesn't see him as positively as he sees himself. And again, I'm not going to make that as any kind of a clinical diagnosis because I'm not a clinician. I'll just simply say if you look at the descriptors of narcissism, and say, does the president tend to score highly on these? You'd say, well, yes, he does. Okay, that was a very fair answer. That was a very fair answer. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of even supporters of the president who, when they looked at the list of characteristics, they would say, well, yeah, he does score high on these things. Although they might, you know, they might say, well, I like him and I support him and I wish him well. It would be hard to say that he does not have narcissistic characteristics. Right. Well, people uh, with narcissistic uh, high levels of narcissistic characteristics tend to be proud of those characteristics. It's not like they deny them. I did a pay article once where I had at the end, I said, the number one test, whether or not you're a narcissist is, if, do you think you're a narcissist? Like, are you a narcissist? Yes or no? If you say yes, you know, you're probably a narcissist. You know, there are a lot of people who are scared of being a narcissist. They're like, oh my God, I'm so scared of it. Am I really? Am I really? And well, they might be a vulnerable narcissist, but I was going to say they're probably not a narcissist, you know, because they have, they still have the self-awareness to care about it. Um, whereas you do tend to find, especially particularly grandiose narcissism, with grandiose narcissism, that they reinterpret all those characteristics as positive things like bravery. Oh, it's valiance. It's bravery. I tell the truth. I say what no one else wants to say. I et cetera, et cetera, while you're leaving all this pain in, in your wake exactly. with other people, you know, you still interpret everything. And so that, so I think grandiose narcissism is actually, it involves all these mechanisms that allow you to like completely distort in, your image, other people's image, distort reality it, to bend to this grandiose self that you have. Absolutely. It's, kind of, it's kind of scary <laughs> to me. It is but. in the extreme view. It is scary. And it took me a while to realize that the problem is not that the person sees themselves self too positively. I mean, because if you kept that in your own head, you could be an internal narcissist and it wouldn't matter to anybody. It's the sense of entitlement and disregard for other people that goes along with seeing yourself so positively that creates the problem. Oh, I really like that. You know, this model, this framework that you have of relational value versus what was it? What was the other one called? Uh, when Instr instrumental, instrumental social, social value. It's yeah. such a good. Will you send me that paper when we get off? When we stop? Um, I thought sure. I, I thought I've read everything you've written, so I'm like surprised that there's something I didn't read. But this, um, is, a, this is in that uh, handbook of status that came out a couple of years ago. There's a handbook of status. Yes, that's a thing. There's the psychology of social status. It's an edited book. Wow. Ching, Tracy, and Anderson. I'm sure that's beach reading. For me. <laughs> okay, so you said that was edited by uh, by Cheng. Yeah, yeah. Cheng, yes, Tracy and... Tracy, yeah. now they have done... I'm glad you actually mentioned their names because they've done some really cool work on hubristic versus authentic pride. And I think that that relates a lot to our discussions we're talking about here today. So hubristic pride, I think we can tie to this grandiose narcissism a bit. Now, authentic pride is something different. And some could argue, I'm a fan of the late Kernis. Mm -hmm. who um, passed away way too soon. Yes. Um, and I really like his idea of optimal self-esteem. I think there's a, there might be a, a link here between optimal self-esteem and authentic pride. Do you agree? I had not thought about that, but I, I can see that. That it is okay to feel good about yourself for something that's socially valued. And that's sort of optimal self-esteem and that's authentic pride. Yes, I did something well and I feel good about it. There's not a thing wrong with that. Where it goes off the cliff is when you when you take that one good thing you did, I won the game, or I had the got the award, or whatever it is, and you generalize that into believing not only are you good at that thing, but you're a special person overall. 
that's when it becomes hubristic pride. That's when it begins to bleed into narcissism. That's when your self-esteem is more inflated than it should be. And, you know, I think some people begin to feel badly about being proud of their accomplishments, but there's nothing wrong with being feeling good about the things that you do. That's nature's way of telling you to keep on doing good things valued by other people. So momentary, they call authentic pride. I never liked that term because that implied there's some kind of inauthentic pride. Uh, but what they, what they mean there is it's pride about an actual accomplishment, not just a general sense that you're proud as a human being. Yeah, I've seen a, a different phrase used sometimes that I like, and that's genuine pride. Even then, it makes it sound like there's some disingenuous <laughs> pride. It's, yeah, I see. Heuristic uh, pride is genuine, and it's yeah, all that is. It's just yeah. misplaced. Yeah, it's I, overgeneralized. I see what you're saying. Yeah, so Trump is, is actually authentic. He's an authentic jerk. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. I mean, if you think about, we're working on some some work on authenticity right now that sort of makes that point. You know, the humanistic psychologists say that we all should always be authentic, and it's an important virtue to be an authentic person. But we each have negative characteristics. So the question is, should I behave authentically with the awful parts of myself? I would say no. That. You don't want a world in which everybody's being authentic. That would be terrible. To act consistently with your darker nature and your negative attitudes and your base motives. No, you have to override that. You don't want to be authentic. Uh, that's hilarious. I'm, as you probably can tell, I'm a big fan of the humanistic psychologist. I mentioned Maslow earlier in this in this podcast, and I think that you know sometimes they were too overly optimistic. Particularly Carl Rogers. You know, he really saw the best, and and I think that's actually to his credit. You know, he really saw the best in all his patients, but he really maybe downplayed evil a little bit too much as, as, and saying, you know, it's evil is, is a thing in some people, uh, and at, at certain times under certain circumstances, you know, it, it's something, maybe something we're all capable of, but it is something that it that does exist. You know, it's a very minority, but it does. But, um, this question of authenticity is really interesting to me. And I definitely don't, no one has all the answers for this stuff, but, I created uh, and have been validating a, a, a scale I call the whole person scale, where I literally take some of these humanistic ideas and I just put it into the scale. Like, I am a fully functioning human is one of the items on the okay. scale. Okay. Uh, another item is I feel whole. And then I feel empty is the reverse coded <laughs> version okay. of it. But another item on there is I accept all sides of myself, even my dark aspects. So there's, there's this, I think, something that's very valuable from these humanistic psychologists, this acceptance aspect. Now, acceptance doesn't mean, Carl Rogers said, you know, the first step to changing yourself is accepting yourself. So maybe it's still good for, in terms, in your search for authenticity to really, you know, not do what grandiose narcissists do, which is deflect everything, or, you know, not to have experiential avoidance, as the ACT approach would talk about. But but maybe the, a good first step is to becoming a full person really is to accept this kind of these naughty sides of yourself and say, yeah, that's part of my, that's who I am as well. But this is another interesting question. Can you accept this stuff, but not integrate it and not put, make it part of yourself? The thing is, we have more of a choice than people realize in terms of what we want to integrate into ourself, even though it might be a part of our constitution, right? Well, yes, but I see, I would say it a little differently. I think that people have to accept all parts of themselves and have to be honest to themselves about their good and their best aspects. And those bad aspects are integrated into their view of their self. They may want to change them. They can work on them. So in that sense, they're sort of authentic in their own mind. They're not denying anything. They know they're good and they're bad. Uh, where the authenticity thing breaks down for me is that we should not act on all parts of ourselves. Some people who endorse authenticity would say you always want to behave consistently with who you really are your actual traits and motive goal, be consistent with that. And I would say, no, you've got, to, you've got to resist acting consistently with the parts of yourself that are bad. That means you have to know they're there and you have to accept them as part of you. And you want to change them or work on them and not be bad, that's great. But just don't behave authentically all of the time if it's going to hurt other people. Well, this is um, it's interesting because I think it's good to make a distinction between part well, you, you said parts of yourselves. There's parts of, of your biology, and then, but that doesn't have to be part of yourself. Well, we're back into where we started at the very beginning <laughs> about what, what we mean by self there. So, so, so let's use the word somehow view of yourself or your identity. 
I, I would say that my bad parts of myself are part of my identity to the extent that I recognize that they are really me. Because we all know people who do bad things and say, well, that wasn't really me. Right. And I could say, yes, it was you. It really was. Now, you might want to change that, but it is you. Accept that it's you and then work on it. It doesn't make sense to say, well, you know, I, I abused my partner. Oh, but that wasn't really me. That's not really what I'm like. Yes, it is what you're like. So accept it and then work on it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. I, how can we link this to the evolutionary psychologist emerging view of subcells as modules? You know, I'm not, I'm not completely convinced by that by that approach, but I wanted to bring it up here to see how it links to your own work. And if you thought about it, like Rick Robert Kurzman has some has, has yes. written a book called "Everyone Else Is a Hypocrite But You." Yes. <laughs> I like that book a lot. <laughs> well, I like the book too, but I think that it downplays the role of the, of the executive, of the central executive. Like, I think that approach ignores that we do have something called the lateral prefrontal cortex, you know, that, that can inhibit some of these things. We're not just like these automatons that just walk around like, oh, I activate this subself automatically because I see this stimulus. Ooh, I, like, we're not like these ADHD modules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I really, I, the word subself always throws me because it sounds like it's, you know, a part of yourself. And in the sense that it's part of you as a functioning organism, well, yeah, I guess it is. But I think that the point that he makes is that there are a lot of things going on in the brain that are creating our reactions, our behaviors, and our thoughts and our emotions that we are not consciously aware of. I mean, and everybody would admit there's a lot of non conscious things happening. And they're not necessarily integrated. It's not that we don't have an executive that control conscious parts of ourselves. Things that we're conscious of, we can control. But I think his argument is there's an awful lot of stuff that's just kind of spurting out of us. And behaviorally, that we can't easily control because we can't catch it in action because it's happening so non-consciously. And I'm sort of persuaded by that, that there's just a lot of things and they're not necessarily well integrated. He talks about them like, apps on phone where your weather app and your maps app and your news app, well, they use some of the same architecture, but they don't have to be consistent with each other or coordinated at all. And they're just performing different functions. Now, that doesn't mean there's not conscious parts of ourselves that we regulate very deliberately, but there's a lot of non-conscious things going on as well. Well, that is certainly true, but it also is true that we can actively and willfully try to have a harmonious self. Well, but only a self that's harmonious in terms of the things that you're actually conscious of. That's right. That's right. So if I have some non-conscious reactions I'm not aware of that make me determine that I get angry in certain kinds of situations, and I know I'm getting angry in those situations, but I don't have any idea why, it's much more difficult for, for me to integrate whatever that process is within my harmonious view of my conscious view of myself. So I, I don't disagree. It's just it's awfully hard to pull the content of things in that you're not consciously aware of. Yeah, well, I guess I'm having trouble with your definition of self and understanding then what is not self. Well, again, that goes back to the definition of self. If you go back to my original thing, we're just talking about a cognitive apparatus that has no content. And so maybe I, what, the way I better say it is that there's an awful lot of things affecting your behavior that you have no conscious awareness of. They're not part of your mental self. They are part of you biologically. There's all kinds of crazy things happening in our brains. But I, I'm not willing to say that everything that's happening in our brain is part of our self. Okay, good, good, except good. In, except in the most – because in that case, then all animals do have selves. Right. New babies have selves, and we don't want to go there. The self has to deal with conscious processes or, or becomes meaningless in psychology. Okay, it doesn't so mean that's the only definition of self. Like I said, there's seven, oh, seven good. different definitions. Good. So there's a conscious – this is important. So these things that Kurzman's talking about, these modules, then they're, they're not self – no, not, most okay. of them are not. So they that's may a, that's out. A, when they become conscious, they might be part of self, but they're not self. Well, that's really important because people, some evolutionary psychologists like Kenrick have used the phrase, they have called those things, those modules, sub-cells. Yes. That's why I'm trying to clarify this because I think there's confusion in the yes. field between this stuff. Okay, I like your distinction between conscious and unconscious. We can still, so I acknowledge, I do fully acknowledge there are these all these apps running in the background. Robert Wright was on my podcast recently, and he was discussing his new book, Why Buddhism is True. And I don't know if you've read his book yet, no, but no. you would love it. Uh, I see the Buddha behind you on the bookshelf there. Um, but you, <laughs> <laughs> you really would love it. 
he does a really masterful job of integrating evolutionary psychology and those that those ideas with with what Buddhism can offer you, what meditation can offer you. It offers you this opportunity to not be so ruled by all of these evolutionary drives and instincts that have evolved in another time and place far long time ago to uh, maybe serve different purposes and to be adaptive for different reasons than than they are helpful today. So um, yeah. And I would think, I think that's true. And I also think that as people learn to meditate, they aren't as controlled with all of their random self-thought that are sort of leading them in crazy directions. They begin to recognize how scattered and out of control their mind is and that they're following thoughts that don't have any validity. So it kind of works at both ends of the continuum. Some of the most basic motives and values that evolved in the past become aware of those things arising up, even though you don't want them to. But it also makes you aware of all of these highly conceptualized self-use plans and ideas and worries that are controlling your behavior that if you're not quiet in your own mind and watch them, you're not even going to be aware of them. You can't then control them in a harmonious way. Yeah, I, I like that. You're talking about r- like rumination can be very detrimental. And my, my colleagues have been taking a neuroscientific approach and have been distinguishing between the, the brain areas associated with rumination, the brain areas associated with more creative imagination. I would hate for the creative imagination to go away if we got rid of the self, because it would go away. if we get, So I don't think we want to get rid of the self completely. Oh, no. no. Well, you said it's a curse. <laughs> well, I, I said it's a mix of <laughs> Oh, you changed no. that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> okay. that's like your revised, you, you come up with a revised one. <laughs> Here so in the podcast. Self-aware. Yeah. All of the achievements of human civilization that we consider are uniquely human, required self-awareness, whether we're talking about healthcare or religion or philosophy, government, all of that requires self-awareness. If you ask the question, why are human beings so different than all other animals? The other animals are living in a state of nature, just like they've lived for millions of years, and we've created this crazy environment around us. All of that is traceable to our ability to think consciously about ourselves and to make plans and to coordinate and to consider options. So, no, we don't want to get rid of the self. We wouldn't have air conditioning, and I live in the south, <laughs> and we wouldn't have flush toilets, and we wouldn't have cars, and I don't want to go live in a tree somewhere. I'm really so glad you said that. We need self-awareness. I'm really <laughs> glad you said that. Thank you. Uh, so my mentor in grad school, Jerome Singer, has this idea called positive constructive daydreaming, which is very conducive to creativity and flourishing. So um, you need the self for that, at least self-aware, self-awareness. Absolutely. So good. I like this. So self-esteem is one particularly evolved function of the self. Can I phrase it that way? It's one. Maybe imagination is another evolved function, but self-esteem is a particularly evolved function that that you're arguing really evolved to track, uh, you know, interpersonal value of some sort. I would even say it a little differently because my hunch is that the beginnings of the evolution of self-esteem were before we had a conscious ability to think about ourselves. Because I get the sense that animals have positive and negative feelings when they're accepted and rejected. For social animals, they have emotional responses and behavioral reactions when they're being included versus excluded by other members of their species. So I think that basic mechanism for monitoring your social relationships was already there. But then once we became self-aware, Came able to think about ourselves consciously, then it became what we think of as self-esteem today. I can actually think about my good and bad parts. Why these people rejected me, or why I failed, and it affects my views at once. But the basic mechanism, I think, were there before that. That is so interesting because the need for belonging—we share that with other animals. And can we say that the need for esteem we share with other animals to some rudimentary degree? Like, sure, like like hierarchy and some sort of social status. You see that with alpha, you know, chimps and stuff. So that's got to exist as well, right? Yeah, the status side and the inclusion side. I mean, even if it's a status thing, I still have to be able to get along with the other members of my troop if I'm a chimpanzee. They can't kick me out because they kick me out, I'm I'm not going to make it. So I have to behave myself and play by all of the rules of the group, even when status is not involved. Acceptance and belonging is still going to be important for social animals. Don't drive me out of the pack. Gotcha. That's really interesting. I read in the Need for Belonging article you wrote with Roy Baumeister, which is one of my, I mean, it's one of the most highly cited papers of all time. So for me to just say I like that paper would be 
the understatement of the century. And I want to add, and it is, it's been cited a tremendous amount, and I think about two-thirds of the citations were unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) And what I mean by that is, people will say, uh, human beings have a desire for social acceptance and belonging. And then they cite Baumeister and Leary, 1995, which strikes me a little bit like a biologist saying mammals have a need for oxygen and then citing somebody. It's so obvious. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And to be fair to Maslow, if someone's just citing that sentence, they probably should cite Maslow. (laughs) Or Adler. Yeah, yeah. Alfred Adler wrote an awful lot about that, too. Okay, good. I really like you brought that up because Maslow read Adler a lot and was influenced by him a lot. And also Adler's ideas about power. Can we talk about some of Adler's ideas about power? We can. I don't know anything about them, but... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then I'll table that. But yeah, so uh, that's really interesting. If they're citing, you know... A more fleshed out theory and, and data, I think your paper, it's very, very worthy of citing. And um, it really brought to, uh, to the foreground in the, in the field of this for research, stimulated research on this topic. I'd like to talk about something related to all of this that you've also studied that I'm fascinated with, and that's self-presentation strategies. And let's pick one, imposter syndrome. Now, you've kind of found that it's not all what it, it may seem to be. In the sense that people who have imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome might not be exactly the way they present it to be. That's correct, because most people, when they talk about the imposter syndrome, they describe it as people who are afraid of being found out to be as incompetent as they believe they are. They think other people have overestimated their abilities, and so they say they walk around feeling like an imposter. The irony is that these people who supposedly are afraid to be found out to be lacking readily admit to other people, I'm not as good as you think I am. That doesn't gel. I mean, if people are afraid of being found out as an imposter, you don't walk around and say to other people, I'm not as good as you think I am. So what we found is the possibility that the thing that we normally think of as the imposter syndrome is a self-presentational strategy. It's an effort to lower other people's expectations of you so that they won't be disappointed, so that you won't let them down. So they won't expect too much. So you won't fail in a sense, because if I don't have any expectation of you, then, you know, no matter what you do, I'm not going to consider it a failure. So it's more complicated. I'm not saying there are not people who walk around feeling like an imposter and don't tell anybody. That's true. But in the literature, they don't distinguish that from people who walk around saying, I feel like so much of an imposter. I'm not as good as you think I am. So there's a self-presentational element. Yeah. And people, it tracks low self-esteem. Yes. So again, we bring in the interpersonal, it's still consistent with this theory. It's part of this overarching framework that, um, you know, if you don't expect to be of much relational value to others, you may be more likely to have higher imposter syndrome. And in fact, I ran that study. And so I wanted to share this with you for the first time on the psychology podcast. I was very curious whether vulnerable narcissism would track imposter syndrome, and I found a correlation of 0.78. Oh, my goodness. Between the two. About the same thing, then. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I don't know if they're the same, because I also found a very strong correlation between vulnerable narcissism and authenticity measures, you know, um, the 12-item authenticity scale measure. So self-alienation is one of the facets of of, uh, the authenticity scale. So there's something going on here with, you know, the system of things where you're very, a very unsure self, a very, un, you know, uh, uncertain, a very uncertain self tracks a lot of things, self-presentation strategies, including imposter syndrome. Do you know of any other self-presentation strategies like imposter syndrome? That, what are some other in that class? Well, people typically talk about different strategies in terms of what's the image that you're trying to project. The strategy of exemplification, for example, would be wanting to be seen as somebody who's sort of upstanding and responsible and moral and conscientious. So it's an effort to it's an effort to be seen as a conscientious, upstanding person. Self-promotion as a strategy is an effort to go through life being seen as competent. Ingratiation, I don't like that term for this, but the strategy of ingratiation is going through life trying to be seen as a likable person. So 
on almost any dimension you can think of, there are times in which people want to be perceived in that particular way, including in negative ways. Sometimes you want to be perceived as helpless so other people will help you or as intimidating so that people leave you alone. So, I mean, so much of life, so much of the consequences and outcomes we receive in life have to do with how we're perceived by other people. So we manage our oppression and get what we want. So it seems like vulnerable narcissism is more tied to ingratiation, I would argue, and self-handicapping is another one I just thought of that I think is um, probably more vulnerable. But then grandiose is more the image projection of, you know, so I think that there's these two main classes of self-presentation strategies, ones that uh, inflate, that they maintain an inflated image of self and those that maybe not maintain a negative, well, I don't think anyone wants to maintain a lower image of themselves, but they, they want to, what they really want to do is avoid, they're trying to avoid something. They're trying to avoid like success in a way. It's almost like vulnerable narcissists are, are ashamed or have shame for being great, even though they want to be great. <laughs> sometimes, and sometimes it's to avoid responsibility. Sometimes it's a dependency coming through where I want other people to be there for me and to support me and to help me so that there's a certain amount of supplication that's involved. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, you, you said, like, what's the image you're trying to project? And and I'm trying to, for me, it's very clear with grandiose narcissism what the image they're trying to project is. But what is the image that vulnerable narcissists are trying to project? I think it's a combination. I'm, I'm not threatening. I need a certain amount of help. It's not that I'm incompetent necessarily, but I want other people to be around. There's some dependency associated. So interesting. And that's why we find in the attachment literature, we find a, a strong correlation between vulnerable narcissism and both avoidance and anxious attachment and grandiose narcissism is actually not correlated with those insecure forms of attachment. Wow. Okay, so this all makes sense. Everything we talked about today kind of we came up with an <laughs> we came up with an integrated integrated theory of of, of the self today. <laughs> well and, and all of my, my interest in all of this started with self presentation in grad school. It was an awareness that so much social behavior, no matter what else we're doing, it's not that we go through life just trying to make impressions on other people, but no matter what else we're doing, we keep an eye on how are other people going to regard us in this interaction, and is that going to facilitate or impede whatever my goals are? And so you know, we're, we're never indifferent to how we're perceived by other people. Sometimes we're not thinking consciously about it, but at any, any given moment, we all know something can go badly wrong where we look like a fool, we look immoral, people question our judgment, and then all the kind of defenses come up. So that awareness of the social image and its importance is what led me into the interest in belonging, because so much of a belonging is facilitated by being perceived as a certain kind of person. That's what moved me into the sociometer thing. It's what moved me into the curse of the self initially, because people were too worried what other people thought of them. So I have really always seen these internal self-processes as working in the service of our social interactions and relationships. Makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about religion and morality for a second. Sure. Uh, it's a topic I know you're interested in. What, uh, passage, yes. How, uh, well, tell me in what ways are you interested in that topic and its relationship to the self? Well, I'm, sort of, I'm interested to some extent in the fact that religion and morality seem to have emerged in part to help to control excessive self-centeredness. So many of the ills of society and the ills of group living occur when people become so focused on themselves that they disregard the well-being of other people. And if, this, if it's in your own tribe or clan or group, that's going to be disastrous. Something has to keep us from being excessively selfish and excessively egoistic. And so, you know, if left to our own devices, if it didn't backfire, we would all just want to take everything we could possibly get. We would all be sort of entitled and narcissistic. Something pulls us back, and it tends to be things that are in the domains that we think of as morality and religion. So if you say, why do we have morality and religion? I think it's to control excessive selfishness at the most broad level. Who invented that? You're saying evolution? Well, so, well evolutionary psychologists certainly say that some of the most basic moral codes, and even among other animals, you get things where you get the sense that they balance their own self-interest against the rest of the group. Because if I take all the meat, a lot of times you're attacked or killed or thrown out. You've got to sort of go along with your with the other members of your group. But I think even more in a more modern sense, how do we make people not to take advantage of others, not to kill others for their own needs, or to take their land, 
take their food, take their cattle. Something has to lead us not to be so selfish that we just create harm everywhere we go. I see most of the ills of modern society as fundamentally problems of excessive selfishness. Whether all, all crime and greed and murder and rape and plunder and theft are all just me believing that my interests and what I want are more important than your interests. And religion and morality originally, setting aside all the dogmatic stuff in religion, was there to say you can't do that. There are certain rules about fairness and lack of harm and treating other people well and keeping an eye on others help to regulate that inherent selfishness in every organism. Mm, that is so interesting. I think you're quite right. Excessive selfishness. Well, you know, my colleagues here at Penn in the criminology department just recently developed a new selfishness scale. And we found it was almost perfectly correlated with the dark triad measure, you know, the, the confluence of narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. And I would argue we just collected data that are relevant to that issue because I believe that the thing that makes the three things in the dark triad cohere is selfishness. That's the thing that all three of those have in common, despite their differences, because they also share lack of empathy, for example. But I think that abject selfishness lies at the core of those three things. I like this. And you said abject selfishness. Now, I think we can actually distinguish, and Maslow did, and, and what's his name? <laughs> the saints, Eric Fromm, um, distinguished the healthy selfishness. So I think there's actually an important distinction to be made between healthy selfishness and abject selfishness, or the kind, the kind that is associated with dark triad. Yes. Because, and, and the way I think of the healthiness thing is that there's a normative level of selfishness that we all accept with each other. You're going to pay your own rent before you give all your money away. We all know we're going to look at other people are going to look out for themselves primarily first. So there's a normative level we all accept. It's perfectly okay to be interested in yourself before you're interested in other people. It's when you step over that line, then you're into that abject selfishness thing. But yes, you're right. There's an optimal, normal, healthy, normative level of selfishness. Right. And, you know, there, this in study of great people of moral courage – like really, really high levels, you find that they are masters at balancing self-interest with other interests. Not only that, but their other interests, their other things they do are, they've, they've made it so it's so well aligned with what they're intrinsically motivated to do. And I think that's an important distinction from the kind of self-serving, self-enhancement you get from narcissists. So we, we actually found, we did a factor analysis of grandiose and vulnerable, we found that self Sacrificing self-enhancement loaded about equally on both factors. It's something that seems to be in common amongst multiple forms of narcissism is that they use, you know, helping these grandiose, I'm the best at helping, you know, like they use, but it's not coming from a real genuine place of wanting to really help a person. It's coming from a place of primarily serving that self-esteem function. So this all That's makes sense. Right. This all makes sense. Lastly, uh, I want to just ask you, what are some tips, ways that people can transcend their ego in the ways, you know, not getting rid of the self. Like, I really like the model of the quiet ego. I don't know if you're aware of the merging research on the quiet ego, some really good research on that topic. So how can we have more of a quiet ego, I would, I would ask? Well, and in fact, Kirk Brown, you know, who developed the mindfulness scale, and I just edited a book on hypo-egoic phenomena. That quiet ego term came from a conference in Flagstaff, Arizona, a number of years ago. It's a great term. I like the word hypo-egoic, a low level of ego. We all have to be self-focused. We have to be concerned with ourselves. But how do we keep it at a minimal level where we're able to function well as human beings, but it doesn't impose on everybody else? And that, in, in my view, that's one of the primary challenges of life for everybody. How do I pursue what I want? in a way that's not excessively self-preoccupied and egoic. I don't know that I have any, any great tips for the average person in terms of how do you balance that? How do you have a quiet ego except to concentrate on it and realize when your own self-interest, your own ego, your own self-preoccupation is creating problems for you or others. And then, there's, then you just sort of monitor it and control it. There's that executive function coming in saying, I don't have to run over other people to achieve my goals in life. What are some practices people can do? Like, have you ever thought about writing a self-help book? <laughs> well, the book I'm working on right now is called Toward a Less Egoic World. 
and it's not a self-help book exactly, but it's sort of an expose on the impact of excessive egoic thought and selfishness on societal problems. And it's, I don't know how self-helpy it's going to be. I'm only about a quarter of the way through throwing junk down on pages. So it's going to be a while, but I've given a lot of thought to this because I think so many problems in personal life and in social life are egoic problems. And what do we do to tone people back a little bit? The first is to just simply make people aware that this is a problem. And if we can, mm-hmm. we can minimize that, then some of these problems will, will be reduced somewhat. You're not going to get rid of them. I don't have a lot of solutions right now. You mentioned Buddhism before. I'm, I'm not a Buddhist, but I do meditate. And I found that meditation is a good way to sort of reduce the self-awareness to some extent, the self-preoccupation. I don't think I have, I don't think I watch out for myself less than I used to, but I don't push my own interests when it's not in my and other people's best interests as much as I used to, because I'm aware. Yeah, the awareness aspect is huge. And I think that because the self-awareness aspect can be so beneficial, I do think you know, there's further evidence that's further evidence for suggesting we should make this distinction between what evolutionist psychologists call sub-selves and the what social psychologists call the self. Yes. Uh, so, so that there can be kind of a, you know, uh, anyway, I think that's that's helpful. Um, what's the word you use that you like better than quiet ego? Egoic. Hypo egoic hyphenated h y p o hyphen e g o i c. That's not as sexy. <laughs> for, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, but it's more likely to get published in a journal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I totally respect that. And, and it's not. And we're not talking about egotism. And we're not talking about egoism. We're talking about egoic egoicism, yeah. which is a sort of a selfish self preoccupation. Because you can you can be very low in egotism and still be very self preoccupied, like a highly depressed person is highly egoic, even though they might have negative, very negative self-views. Well, vulnerable vulnerable narcissism is, yes. is egoic. Yes, very egoic, even though it's not egotistical in the general sense of the word. So this phrase incorporates both forms of narcissism then? Yes. Good, yes. good. Re- yeah. I, I really like that. Um, oh, well, well, Mark, I, I just want to say this has been such an honor for me to be yes. able to – I've wanted to talk about a lot of these issues with you for a really long time, and I thought what better way than – for everyone to hear, you know, and, well, it's been great fun. I don't know if anybody else is uh, really interested in our ramblings, but I have certainly enjoyed it a great deal, both to hear what you have to say and to, for you to force me to think about what I think. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Well, I look forward. <laughs> fair enough. But vice versa, vice versa. Well, I look forward to reading your new book when it comes out, and to continue reading your work. So, thank you. I have enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.